This is Restless. Welcome back to Restless, the young, restless, and reformed. I am your host, Matt, and this time I am not joined by Pastor Michael. I don't, I haven't yet listened to the episode that I couldn't make, so I don't know why he said I wasn't there, Um, but he's not here. Uh, He's not here. I don't know why. Maybe because he doesn't like big, big, long words. Because today, I have a great guest. I am not alone. I get to discuss with him. Maybe we'll get to it. I don't know if it'll come up. But the longest word in the English language, anti-disestablishmentarianism. But I don't think that's his point of view. Welcome to Restless, Greg Baus. Greg, tell our listeners a little bit about... uh, yeah, you and where they can find more from you online if they are so inclined after listening today. Well, thanks so much for having me on. This is a great topic. I did hear that uh, there is a longer longer Latin medical word than anti-disestablishmentarianism. Oh, well, we are certainly not going to discuss that. I will. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Some some disease or particle or something. Uh, well. I am a disestablishmentarianist, and uh, I host, I am co-host of the Reformed Libertarians podcast with Carrie Baldwin, and I was born and raised in Baltimore, Maryland, largely grew up there. My host college career involved a period overseas teaching English, not missionary related, (laughs) just a English teaching schlub. Um, I've been in parts of Asia and Budapest, Hungary most recently, but I've been back in the States in the Susquehanna Valley of Pennsylvania since 2018. I am a student again uh working on my master's thesis in philosophy i am a lifelong student of the philosophy of herman doivert so if there are any potential doivert fans in your audience you can get in contact with me but you can check out our podcast at reformedlibertarians.com we have only one article up, but we've got several episodes at this point. Uh, I think this week we're releasing episode 11. We started in back in November. We're, we're bi-weekly, or I guess you could say there's that ambiguity between bi-weekly and bi-monthly. You're fortnightly as our I'm good for, Yeah, that's, that's a better say. way. That's a better way. That's less ambiguous. Yes, we're fortnight. And... So uh, the one article we have posted is on the topic we're going to discuss today on Hodge and applying his view of disestablishment. Well, that's great. I will make sure I link to that then in the show notes for people who want to to read um, and maybe a, a greater depth. Have you guys ever interacted with the uh, the christian anarchists the a couple of guys uh, another podcast just out of curiosity well we ourselves are actually libertarian anarchists mm. so we do have interaction with a host of different kinds of christian anarchists okay from the 
heretical anabaptistic red letter christians quote unquote and even further off the reservation than that uh kind of Great. christian anabaptist two two more actually you know nicene orthodox guys yeah after we get uh done with this interview i'm it may come out as a bonus episode or maybe for patreon content it sounds like i will be asking greg some of the same questions I asked those anarchists about their view and how it fits with the Westminster Confession of Faith. So it will be an enjoyable continuation of the conversation. But today, um, we on our main show, uh, Greg, um, I'm so glad he did. As some of you know, I'm studying for ordination. And so I've been lazy. I've not reached out for the interviews like I should have out in the reformed world. Uh, as we As we look for what's next, as we think about um, what it means to be reformed as we think about how to apply it um, right now. And so one person we have talked to a number of times before was Stephen Wolf. He released a book. We talked to him about his ideas in the book um, on Christian nationalism, um, where he's kind of defending, um, yeah, a certain post-liberal theory, uh, conservative political theory. And Greg, yes, he reached out and said, could he propose from Hodge um, and from another part of our reformed heritage? Could he propose another kind? And that got me very interested. Um, just interest in American Presbyterianism in general, um, Hodge, and 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 hearing the the various alternatives that can get proposed for us. And so I thought if we're gonna have Stephen on, if we're gonna have him kind of offer his proposal, it would be great, actually to have someone like Greg um, offer another, another, uh, I'm sure very different uh, idea. And so Greg, um, tell us just a little bit about um, your, your interest in the subject, and then we'll kind of dive into Hodge and his proposal. Well, let's see. It's definitely relates to my interest in Christian political philosophy but perhaps behind that more is my commitment to confessional reform theology i'm a westminsterian Mm. and let's see well it's generally those two interests where they intersect, I think, where things get interesting. Mm. Of course, there's the ecclesiastical history dimension to it. Uh, I'm not a historian myself, but I this really has a heavy historical dimension to it, of course. Right. Um and in our given moment, I mean, partly what provoked myself and my co-host Carrie uh, to start the Reformed Libertarians podcast was the recent events of the past three years. <laughs> and so in some ways, although we're not like a current events we, we don't discuss politics from a current events thing. Like we're not going to talk about um, toxic chemical train wrecks or anything. We're, we're talking about uh, principles uh, 
political philosophy from a reformed worldview perspective. But uh, in any case, that the recent tyranny, I guess, provoked me to be even more outspoken. I mean, if you're an outspoken person, what more can you do than start a podcast, I guess? That's right. Um, as, a, as a friend of the show jokes, what do you call three white guys talking? A podcast. So it is the best thing you can do. So, yeah, tell us then. Um, so introduce us a little bit to Charles Hodge um, and maybe a little about the political climate he inhabited right because that will help us understand um what kind where his political theory was coming from sure i am hesitant to well i should say while i i'm familiar with the particular piece of hodge that we'll be talking about and sure. some of his other work in general uh there's probably more informing his overall political views that I am not an expert on. So I just want to confess my limited knowledge here, my admit my ignorance on that, all of that. So there's probably more to it. Uh, Hodge experts will inform us, but he is a professor or was a professor at Princeton before it went bad. <laughs> as, as we all know, it kind of took a major downturn in the 1920s. Uh, he didn't live nearly that long. He was his dates are uh, 1797 to he died in 1878. So he didn't didn't make it to the 20th century. He comes from a Scottish Northern Irish background. Apparently, he's second generation immigrant. His father apparently graduated from Princeton. And I guess maybe your listeners are familiar that Princeton was one of the foundational uh, Presbyterian seminary institutions. Right. The right. Theological in, in, in what became at the time of the Civil War, the Northern Church. And of course, he overlaps with the Civil War, has some interesting conversations with a whole host of other Presbyterian Reformed theologians, interacts with the Germans, and so on. But at the War for American Independence, uh, 1776, if you remember, just let's see now i'm trying to remember the exact dates just following that the main line of presbyterians because of course there were uh, at least three or four streams of presbyterianism in the u.s the let's say church of scotland line there were a number of uh, presbyterian congregations that then in the early 1700s formed into presbyteries and then they were forming the original denomination as it were in the in america um right around following right. the 
seventeen eight because it's because I'm I'm on uh I'm on my ordination kick. Seventeen eighty eight is the uh uh you know first uh, assembly ado- adopting of the constitution. Seventeen eighty nine they have the first general assembly following the adoption That's of right. the Presbyterian Constitution. That's right. So we know that prior to that, a uh, number of presbyteries, maybe some congreg- individual congregations, had a view that was, let's say, at odds with the Westminster Confession as written. And this comes out in the Adopting Act and the formation of the denomination at the time, the General Assembly, when they are talking about subscription, that is ministers, ordained officers subscribing to the confession, they say, look, what are we going to do about this portion that a number of our ministers do not accept? Mm -hmm. How are we going to handle this officially? And that concerned, one of those items concerned the civil magistrate and the provision in the originally written Westminster Confession that there be essentially an established church, a state established church. And so they were taking exception to that and provision was made for that. And then there was an American revision as they should have done. So it was good, good on them for actually revising the confession and saying, we don't confess these points. We don't think they're biblical. Okay. So that's the, that's the background. Then Hodge is basically following the civil war. I believe this article was, I forget the exact dates of the article, but he is reiterating and trying to account for his position. Oh, yes, 1863. Gee, the war was still going on. So yeah. in the midst of the Civil War, he's like, I better write this article <laughs> on why, why we don't believe in an established church. And uh, of course, he is positioning his view in light of the fact for the past approximately 1500 years the not only the western church but church the church elsewhere in the world uh did not hold this position right since and the, and the rest of the church in the world when he wrote this the protestant churches in england germany right these protestant churches were still largely state churches, right? As he wrote this. That's right. Yes. Europe was, uh, although, let's see. I don't know about the, I'm trying to think of uh, the particular provisions, like what basically had begun to happen is that after the Reformation and following the wars of religion, uh, there were while they were still official state churches, more quote unquote religious tolerance mm-hmm. was being implemented. So there was a general 
movement along those lines. But yes, there were still state churches practically in every European country, I think, at the time. Yeah. And so he writes. um, So, yeah. So tell us about tell us describe his defense then of the non-established or the disestablishment of churches um, in the U.S. Yeah. So I give a link to the where you can find the article. Um, and basically he, he runs through a whole history trying to explain how this basic position was understood throughout the history of the church. And then he gives a kind of summary position on the scriptural argument. So it's not pages and pages and pages of scriptural argument. He He's very concise, I think, towards the end in saying, Here's base, you know, here's the gist of it. Why we depart from 1500 years of uh, sort of doctrinal position. Mm. The first point he says is that uh, when we're considering the duties or the task, of the church and of civil government, respectively, when we're considering those things, to determine what they are uh, based on the word of God, we must derive our conclusions from the New Testament. So that's an interesting point. Uh, That's something that you'll find some contention about, I think. But he ends up making some particular points about that. And then he goes, his second point is that when the New Testament speaks about the design of civil governments, governance or civil government, and the official duties of the magistrate, the civil magistrate, it does not give the functions that establishmentarians propose. It doesn't give those religious functions to civil governance. It gives them to the church. And he says the fact that they're given to the church and not to civil government is evidence that they are forbidden to civil government Mm. and then he has a third point and he says and i think this one is uh fairly key he says the means that god is assigned to civil governance in the scripture Uh, by which they are to carry out their duties are coercive means. That is the sword, Mm. right? And he says, using those means to enforce religious duties, basically, is at odds with the commands and example of Christ, it's at odds with Christian liberty guaranteed in the word of God, 
to serve mm-hmm. God uh, according to one's conscience. It is ineffectual to the true ends of religion, which are voluntary obedience to the truth. And it's, he says, productive of incalculable evil. Hmm. <laughs> Once you introduce coercive means into enforcing religious duties. And hmm. so he sort of has conclusion that um, by enjoining these duties concerning concerning faith and worship upon the church as an institution distinct from civil governance, the New Testament teaches positively that they do not belong to the magistrate, but to the church. So Greg, tell me then with Hodge's view um, laid out, let's, let's try and help let's help make it clear for everyone listening how would that view um specifically differ than um some of the suggestions uh stephen wolf made or this kind of or a lot of the ideas that go under the name of christian nationalism how would this differ from that substantively substantively well uh not having read wolf's book but being generally familiar with the main idea his among his various conceptions and proposals uh he part of what i think safe to say that he includes is a form of establishmentarian Hmm. establishmentarianism if it is not that of establishing a specific institution or denomination or a single church, it would relate to an idea of establishing what I might say is establishment of religion, even though those terms were used um, establishment of a church or establishment, civil establishment of religion, civil establishment of the church were used somewhat interchangeably, uh, you could distinguish them by saying, okay, there's not going to be one official church like the Church of the United States or of whatever Mm -hmm. proposed nation or government you're talking about. It could be, we're going to enforce a kind of public morality as represented by thus and such religion Mm. yeah yeah i do think when you as you were talking about hodge's view i think that there are um you know i think that i think it would probably mark a return as there was uh in the in the united states before disestablishment right there was um requirement of church attendance right i think right these are the kinds of things in the realm uh, and maybe not those specific things. As I was preparing um, for our interview, I was listening to an interview with um, uh, Jonathan uh, Den Hartog, who wrote a uh, a historical work, Disestablishment and Religious Dissent. And he studied the process of disestablishment in all of the original uh, states. Um which was really interesting, you know, discussing it. And one of the proposals and what this is, he was very clear in pointing this out in his interview. 
most of the people who talk about any kind of um, establishment on a on a civil level now they talk about maybe a pan protestant version or even just the like what we might call the general nicene christianity right you know anything anything Mm -hmm. in those realms and one thing he points out is there were some people um who were promoting that uh at the time when they were starting disestablishment because they did want religious liberty right for the all the denominations of christianity um but they but they decided that the states decided to to none of the states decided to go that way um my joke now will be i guess pan protestant establishmentarianism has never been tried true establishmentarianism has never been tried instead of libertarianism (laughs) right um but fantastic yeah but i do think it is interesting and so i think that helps so one other question when we talk about um because i think right the points where everyone's agreed is right there is no desire even in even having talked to steven at length oh my robot's trying to talk to us um that's no good uh talking to him right there is no desire right that the that there is this idea even in in the state churches right this idea there's no desire to mix the two kingdoms right the the question is how much of a role does i don't know if the right word i don't think he put it this way i'm putting it in a very layman's term right how much is the overlap these kinds of things right and so what you're describing is when you said there's a it's kind of an opposition to even imposing a kind of morality right that would be related to this tell tell us more what you mean about about what that what that's opposed to what that you know what that would look like does that is that a good question i hope it is right so what hodge specifically addresses or at least as it seems to me and as i try to highlight it what he's focusing on is uh duties concerning let's say faith and worship Mm. right but that does leave somewhat uh unaddressed or outstanding the question of morality in general or ethics and so so if you're not talking about using coercive means to compel some kind of uh public and inevitably in the case of unbelievers insincere profession of faith or compelling them to attend worship that is against their conscience or something along those lines if that's not being considered you still might say well we know what god's abiding moral will is as revealed in scripture and isn't that still obligating on everyone even unbelievers and so shouldn't the civil government have a role in enforcing morality Mm -hmm. and this of course in a way would be public morality so if you want to you know seek secretly i guess in in a non-public way 
engage in lying or something, <laughs> then that wouldn't be the standard or that, you know, that, that wouldn't be accountable to civil government necessarily. Of course, there are forms of lying such as perjury that would be, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a right. public character of the morality that's being enforced uh, distinction. But isn't that so? An example I give in the article, as I'm saying, okay, so here's the issue that um, Hodge more addresses faith and worship, and that leaves open the question of ethics. How can then we apply in some way the insights or the perspective that Hodge has to the question of public morality? Is it the case that the government should enforce all ethics if, for example, theft has a matter of violating God's moral, revealed moral will, abiding moral will, if theft is a matter for the church, right? If, mm. if there's a member of the church and he's a thief... Obviously, the church is to address that problem in public discipline or what have you, discipline right. of the church. Uh, and yet, we also see that that's a matter for civil government. So does that mean this applies across the board? Hmm. And then I raise the question, is... There any scriptural criterion by which we could discern which ethical matters are assigned to civil government for discipline if the set is not just full, a full overlap sure. between the church and civil government? And I propose a criterion by which right. we could discern uh which ethical matters are for not only the church or rather are restricted that civil government is restricted to and and this is great because this is so important because really the when we get down to brass tacks i'm from the midwest right we are we are the we are practical people right when we get down to the brass tacks we what we're really asking is so what are the crimes right what are the things they can punish right all matters and and again i think everyone would agree on this we're trying to figure out where the line is matters of sin are under the jurisdiction of the church right and us uh, and obviously in families to some degree right um but matters of crimes while they are all crimes are in a in a good with a good civil magistrate all crimes would be sinful uh i'm, I'm making room for bad laws which we may uh we may right. we want to say we want to say actual crimes whatever the legislation right. is actual right. what really actual, is crime all is crime. actual crime would be sin and therefore the church could take action not in a not in a way to enact a civil penalty but to um call for repentance right engage in discipline reclaim sinners right any of these kinds of things and so the question were we that i do believe this is an, an entirely a 
appropriate, and I'm so glad we're here, every Christian proposal has to answer this question. And obviously there are better and worse answers, right? There's, um, you know, obviously controversial um, and uh, neither of us would be in this, but right, theonomy, right? Greg Bonson says every mosaic penalty, right? Like there's all these, there's a wide variety throughout church history of proposals. And so I do think this, this really is the question. So I'm glad, um, I am glad we are making it to this part of your article, um, even if it means we won't make it all the way through political resistance, which would be maybe another good, another good topic. But so take us, take us through your criterion and then just demonstrate a little bit for everyone how it would how it would work out right i should say when i mentioned hodge's first point about Mm -hmm. the way we approach these issues must be um understood on the basis of the new testament this is fundamental Mm. because proposals for understanding the teaching of scripture on these points go awry inevitably, not just with theonomy, (laughs) but in other perspectives, when they misunderstand the relation between the old and new covenant, Mm. the mosaic and what is now the, the, so, so Hodge says very forthrightly, that's obsolete. It was temporary. I mean, he's on good grounds because that's what the author of Hebrew says, <laughs> right? The old right. covenant is obsolete. And right. the Westminster Confession itself, of course, says that the polity is abrogated uh, or what was the word? Expired. Right. right. Because the church in that case, uniquely for God's purpose in that time was also a nation state which obviously you can read the new testament the people of god did not expire but that form of their government does right and so um we are so the whole the whole old covenant the whole old covenant law is obsolete there is the pre-mosaic abiding moral will of god that was represented in that covenant that doesn't go away but uh, so that abides in the new covenant, but the old covenant was temporary. And so when you, it's, it's a, a matter of consistently uh, accounting for that fact that puts mm-hmm. you on the right track. And Hodge's last point about the coercive means instituted for civil government is the key. Mm. Now, what people will immediately recognize is that under the old covenant, under the Mosaic theocracy, coercive means were used against immorality. Mm -hmm. So you're not hurting anybody. You're not aggressing against your neighbor. You're not attacking them physically or robbing them. You're just violating the Sabbath. Right. And the death penalty Penalty, comes to you. Okay. So that is what does not apply outside 
the eschatological intrusion ethics of the old covenant. Hmm. Outside of the Mosaic theocracy, with and, and in fact, not just a time period, but within the bounds of the geography, outside of that, it's a common grace order. Hmm. And the principle of, of common grace as it applies to civil governance as explicitly established in Genesis 9 and then reiterated effectively in Romans 13 is what we call the lex talionis. Hmm. Lex talionis is a fancy Latin phrase, but as you all know, as it's represented in the uh, old covenant is eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth in Genesis nine in the common grace order. It's whoever sheds the blood of man by, by man shall his blood be shed. Hmm. And so it's death for death. <laughs> and that of course is a epitome, right? It's, it's, it's epitomizing aggression. Right. And there's a principle you have to sort of think um, on a certain level of abstraction, as it were, in, in categorical terms. There's a principle of proportionality in the retribution. So the proportionality in retributive justice which is the guiding star of civil governance as established by God is that, for example, the penalty must fit the crime. Mm. If someone, um, you know, robs, steals your car, let's say they, they wreck the car. Um, that's not the, 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 proportionate penalty would not be death sure right right this is opposed to other ancient codes like the code of hammurabi right you steal right. we cut off your hand right yeah. like right. you know these these kinds of things rather than a payment in kind and some percentage more for damages and so on which is reflected in the mosaic law and again the That's westminster right. confession does say the moral principles that underlie the kinds of penalties, the kinds of things that that should be disallowed, um, that alone, the the principles behind them, not not any of the specifics, do do continue right as a reflection of God's moral order. That's right. So it's not that the uh, old covenant was completely without a reflection of these things right but here's the distinguishing characteristic of the pre and post old covenant administration that we understand to be a co the common grace one mm. that application of lex talionis that is of a common grace character is that proportionality entails not only to what degree or extent coercion is used, but whether it is used at all. Mm. So to use coercion 
against non-aggressive immorality. And let me just explain a slightly technical term. Um, coercion, be that physical force or the credible threat, threatening of it against someone's person or their property, right? So I don't actually have to uh, uh, attack your person to pit pocket you, right? Mm -hmm. uh, by slip your wallet out of your pocket without you noticing you might say well that's not aggressive but it's it's a it's a form of initiating against your property consent, person taking of your property okay so that so there's two forms of coercion basically there's an initiatory form of coercion like the first use of coercion and there's responsive coercion right? So someone sucker punches you, that's sort of epitomizing a initiation of coercion. Uh, you, you know, pushing him back or deflecting the punch or punching him to, you know, stop his further attack or something, that's responsive coercion. Mm. So it's initiatory coercion, the first use of coercion that we're labeling aggression hmm. against someone's person or property. So that's what we mean by non-aggressive immorality. That is hmm. morality, immorality that does not involve the initiation or the first use of coercion against someone's person or property. Yeah. So... so Oh, to use coercion against that, to get use coercion against non-aggressive immorality is disproportionate and violates mm. the sword power authorized by God for civil governance under a common grace order. Yeah, I think that's that is good. I think this is again, um, just like in our interview Stephen, i think it's these things will be very illuminating um and so as we leave i have kind of about i have about three questions so one on hodge one on um uh disestablishment um and uh, it's a common objection to it that uh i i want to give you a chance to answer um and then another just on what you've kind of derived from Hodge in understanding um, with coercion um, and non-aggressive uh, these principles, um, I want to ask a, a question about that as well. And and I'll let you, Greg, since you're the guest, I'm a good host. Do you uh, do you, I'll let you choose the order uh, on our way? Oh, uh, of of these questions, of these questions. Yep. Let's see. Uh, there was so a question Hodge, about yep yeah. Hodge disestablishment, and then something specific uh, about the this this principle this governing principle uh, you're you're kind of deriving from Hodge and from the uh -huh. from the New Testament. I feel like maybe the third one should go first, and then and then the the other ones will great come after. Great, so so you know, and I asked. Stephen, a similar question, though I'm sure I'm going to get a very different answer, right? You're obviously proposing a a pretty major revision to government as we currently know it, right? And and if so, 
And if not, that's okay. You can tell me no. No, what we got now. This is this is reformed uh libertarian uh anarchism. Uh that that's okay if that's the case. I, I'm sure it's not. But what um what what would it look like to begin to move in the direction that you're describing? Okay, so the full reformed libertarian position as it were to get to get the big picture you can go to our website we have a little button there at the top that says reformed libertarian statement and that lists 25 principles which are a summary a wow. summary of what is below that in terms of our statement in three sections and several sub points so people can look at that if they really want to get into the specifics. Uh, what we're proposing, I would say, is not different from the idea of disestablishment as exists on paper. <laughs> so in other words, uh, when the uh, constitution was formed whenever that was 1787 or nine or something um 87 uh and the first amendment in the bill of rights and it said congress shall make no law respecting the an establishment of religion right so that was nationally and of course the states particularly could have their own state religions if they wanted which they did at the time and then as you noted they progressively got rid of um the idea along those lines of course is that that was the right move right like that the federal government being limited to not make any law respecting an establishment establishment of religion was the right way to go and the states following in that also was the right way to go hmm. uh what is different is the fact that in besides the fact that every probably every local every county every state and absolutely the federal government explicitly violates its own constitution in many 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 ways mm. <laughs> um so that for example government education i would say is a violation of that provision mm. Ooh, tell us more well in that establishing uh schools that are going to be government funded if nothing else but inevitably government directed uh we cannot get away from education in whatever particular areas reading writing arithmetic kind of thing and try to make that indifferent to an ultimate frame of meaning 
<laughs> right. With respect to religion. So you cannot so, have government controlled education and disestablishment consistently. So so what you're saying is that uh in in theory there aren't officially established things like this, but de facto they're in schools and probably many other areas, what you're saying. Probably as we think about it. That's right. I'm saying we have constitutions on paper and they mean absolutely nothing with regard to the way the government actually conducts itself. Right. And And so that's the that's part of what we would say we're proposing that's different (laughs) is that uh, as far as disestablishment on paper, uh, we don't have any beef with that. Of course, we support that, but that's not actually practiced. So it needs to actually be practiced. Uh, As far as a broader political philosophy, the Reformed Libertarianism statement will go into details and provide the perspective and justification on that. But we have an episode, episode number eight, I believe it is. So if you go to reformedlibertarians.com slash 008, it'll bring you to it. And that is called the Boiti Option named after Etienne de la Boiti, uh, a political philosopher who was picked up by the French Reformed, hmm. the Huguenots, although he wasn't a Huguenot himself. He was in that milieu, so to speak. And uh, we call that the peaceful, the strategy of the peaceful underthrow of the state. Great. And... I will link I will link to that in the show notes <laughs> because I will be listening to it. That will be very Perfect. uh I'll be listening to it. Um that is our proposal for how to uh, partially, you know, that's 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 a sort of if you read our our statement and listen to that episode, you'll get the basic idea. Let me listen, let me ask a follow-up. I didn't mean to do this, but okay. Is is there some degree where you, right when you're talking about schools, and again, I and I, you're a libertarian. Um, I'm a person with a uh, who's um, observed the world for a little while. I don't want the government schools, right? So, uh, and but isn't there some degree that no matter what what is done in public life, mm-hmm. it has to reflect some some fundamental framework about the world like it has to again it doesn't have to Mm. enforce it but isn't there is there some degree where these things there is something of that it's just inescapable at some level yeah that's a good observation um and good question so what i was saying about education was that you cannot deal with the subjects in schooling uh as though it were indifferent to an mm. ultimate frame of meaning that shapes those which we think of course is inevitably a religious one and the same is inevitably true with regard to civil governance in terms and this is what i would say in terms of how it's grounded mm. so what makes me a libertarian and 
anarch uh and uh atheist jack right so here's atheist jack he's also a libertarian how can we both be libertarians but i'm a reformed christian and he is an atheist how can we both hold to the same essential position with regard to self-ownership property rights and the corresponding obligation to non-aggression well the fact is because uh there are realities that god has himself created uh these are things he built in to the nature of existence that can in fact be recognized by atheist jack but he is going to sort of warrant and base his recognition of those realities on a false basis hmm. Hmm. right sure and that's how a former formally right in a formal sense that's how just civil governance would operate hmm. it would operate according to the principles the normative principles of civil justice that god has written into reality that can be recognized by unbelievers but not accounted for by them on hmm. its true basis great yeah, I think that's a helpful that is a helpful answer. So now let me ask um and and again it's it's a question that I think is on people's mind. Um so this this guy I was listening to who studied the history of disestablishment um uh when the when the states got rid of their state churches um depending on what side you are it's either viewed as uh a lot of people interpret it this way. Um that disestablishment was the beginning of the secularization process, right? That has taken us to where we are. Um, and so again, people on a uh, on the secular side view it as kind of a victory. And then the people who, who view it as a negative, right? View the kind of new secularism as a negative thing, view this as kind of the start. Like this is where, this is where it started. This is where the slippery slope started that has got us to where we are. Um, and so it's something he had to deal with. Um, and so, yeah, I just don't, I wanted to ask you what what is your um, opinion about about that kind of objection or at least observation uh, to to the disestablishment of churches and that project? Well, it is a fact that the Christian civil establishment, right? So Christendom. The civil establishment of Christianity in the West was first challenged uh, in a more significant way from an unbelieving perspective, right? They weren't the first to challenge establishmentarianism. There were believers during the actual 1500s um and then uh, as i mentioned in the article 1600s and following but 
uh, it really got a, a sort of um, popular backing from basically unbelieving perspectives. And of course, their perspective was, hey, our position of unbelief is religiously neutral. Mm. We're not adopting an anti-Christian or, uh, you know, to be sort of atheistic in these ways um, is, is is kind of a position of neutrality. We're not adopting a false religion mm. was the mythology that the secular enlightenment was, you know, proposing. And yeah, so in some ways, I think it's true that uh, secularists obviously didn't want a religion that they opposed to be somehow established by the government and, in fact, turned around and used the government to increasingly impose their false religion which they denied was a religion the whole time. Yes, that is how the history sort of developed. But it doesn't mean that in order to um, have a normatively, you know, obviously these things are more or less, but I mean, a more normatively operating society with a functional civil governance, it doesn't mean that that requires uh, civil enforcement of religion. Yeah. So it requires, I think, let's call it epistemic humility on the part of Christians to say, oh, here are these horrible people who <laughs> are opposing us and lying about the nature of their ultimate commitments as though they weren't themselves religious in their non-Christianity and so on and so on and so on. So, you know, we, we are in a position to be, uh, I think to have a more sophisticated and uh, rigorous understanding of the issues and it's simplistic to fall back to the position that the only way to maintain this is to enforce our religion. I think that's as wrongheaded as it gets. Yeah. Um, and I, I will point out that the, um, you know, I do think again, right. Your, your opinion is going to be um, very much. It's very much going to color, right. Your opinion of it, but right. The author of this historical work, which is obviously not what we're doing now um, does point out that, the 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 push for it among the 13 states were were not under uh were not for the same reasons right uh the kind of modern secularists champion it right there they had very much in view um christian liberty christian freedom right those were the things that were really animating them again right or right or wrong um that it's just i just think it's important to note um them so last question then greg here we go. So we have to ask a question about Hodge. And I'm asking it because I brought it up in an episode where we responded to some of your feedback. And so um, yeah. I want 
I want to, I'm going to read, I shared my screen so Greg can see it and I'm going to let him interact with it after I read it. So I'm using, I'm using a little bit of this as a bit of a test case to think about how Hodge is thinking about the relationship of morality, um, the state and the Christian. And so uh, this is in, um, um, he's in a discussion on, on, um, on, uh, it's right before his section. If you're looking at this at home, it's right before the section starts proof that this is a Christian and Protestant nation. So he says, if Christianity requires that one day in seven should be a day of rest from all worldly avocations, the government of a Christian people cannot require any class of the community or its own officers to labor on that day, except in cases of necessity or mercy. Should it, on the ground, that it had nothing to do with religion, disregard that day, and direct that the customs house, the courts of law, the legislative halls should be open on the Lord's Day, and public and public business be transacted as on other days, it would be an act of tyranny which would justify rebellion. It would be tantamount to enacting that no Christian could hold any office under government or have any share in making or administering the laws of the country. The nation would be in complete subjection to a handful of imported atheists and infidels. So, so Greg, I think this is a, I find this quote fascinating from Hodge, um, given, given his view um, and given just the, the general, right, the American um, revision of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Um, so how would you, how would you understand um, Hodge in light of uh, what you have you been describing do you feel is there any tension here with what he's saying and what you've been describing um oh or... yeah well yes so okay. let me let me say that hodge's own position is not the one that i draw out in the latter half of the article right <laughs> when i say here here's hodge's argument against establishment of the church. And then I apply that to establishment of religion and public morality. That second part where I'm applying his argument is not Hodge's own position. Right. So what we have in the history of the church are trans transition positions between full establishmentarianism of a church into religious tolerance along with establishmentarianism into establishmentarianism of religion. And then of course, into a more consistent position that I'm trying to argue for. And what's interesting here, um, it tell, tell me if you, if you think otherwise, Matt, yeah. what he's basically saying is if you have Christian people, under some civil government, if that civil government is not Christian, it's illegitimate. Hmm. That's that's what he's saying. He's saying Christian people can revolt against every non-Christian government they've ever lived under ever. <laughs> right. Well, and and I do think part of the reason it is then important is right. His next section is his proof on why this is a uh -huh. Christian people. But yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's basically that's basically what he's saying. Okay, so I'm not going to debate that. I just want to point it out. Yep. Nope. Great. And um now 
the I don't know if you've ever mentioned these documents on your show before, but the Savoy Declaration, mm -hmm. which was a rewrite, so to speak, of the Westminster Confession by the independents or the Congregationalists who are still Pado baptists but then that in turn was borrowed by the quote-unquote particular Baptists. Uh, they're, they're the 1689 Baptist Confession. And in any case, they, before the American Presbyterians, scrubbed the establishmentarian bits in the uh, Westminster Confession. So you can sort of see the Americans in some ways borrowing from the independents, uh, the Congregationalists, in their formulations. But they, the Congregationalists themselves, still maintain a kind of establishment of religion, of public morality. Mm. So they hadn't quite gotten there yet. So yeah. I don't want to misrepresent Hodge. I mean, I don't think that I do, but just to clear, just to be absolutely yeah, yeah. clear, when yeah. in my article, when I'm applying it, I try to say, you know, I think this is how the the principles that Hodge establishes apply to the question, and it requires this ab, uh, elaboration because Hodge doesn't do it to apply it to public morality, and he himself didn't hold that position but I think that's what's consistent. So um, I think uh, Hodge's principles are sound. Those three principles that he lays out, we need to follow through with them. And he himself did not quite do it. Well, Greg Baus is in the house, everybody. This has been an episode <laughs> of Restless. We don't have time to get into uh, today questions of, you know, of course, the classic questions uh, that deal with common good, libertarianism, um, and even further. But what I hope uh, was helpful for everyone was, again, hearing an alternative as we all look to um, to the the fact that there is something very broken in our political order. Shout out to the little ebook we put out, The Deacon of God, where we came and we actually collected all of these different reformed confession statements on um, the civil magistrate. We think it's useful. And so we make, I don't know, it's it's really cheap on Amazon because we want to make sure anyone who who wants it. And obviously you can go to monergism uh, if you don't want them collected. All the all the confessions are there for free. Right. Um, can so I plug another book? Please do. Thank you for coming. And we'd love to let you plug something. All right. Uh, the Reformed Libertarians podcast is produced by the Libertarian Christian Institute. <laughs> and that's at libertarianchristians.com. We're part of the Christians for Liberty Network. Uh, libertarianchristians.com and my co-host, Carrie Baldwin, produced a book called Faith Seeking Freedom. And it's got a subtitle like, I don't know, uh, Answers to Tough Questions or something like that. <laughs> but that's also very inexpensive. You can find it on Amazon. You can I think the website might be faithseekingfreedom.com. That would probably bring you to a page where you can find the book. Mm, great. Well, folks, let us know if you're interested in this conversation and we will get Greg and maybe even his co-host back. It'd be fun. 
thank you to our guests. Thank you to our listeners. And I guess thank you to Pastor Michael, even though he wasn't there. Hey, rate and review this show. It would be very helpful. Subscribe on YouTube. I will release the conversation that me and the guests had about if anarchism can be squared with the biblical account or the Reformed Confessions on our Patreon. So, we'll see you there. Bye.